John Lund was a dentist who practiced in San Jose, California. When he retired, a younger dentist took over his practice. And this new younger dentist noticed that he wasn't making nearly as much money as John Lund had reported he was making. Over time, the new dentist discovered that John Lund had given many of his patients completely unnecessary treatments and billed them for procedures he had never actually performed. That's Ferris Jabber talking about John Lund, a dentist who performed 18 root canals on a single patient within five years. Lund was an extreme example of dental malpractice, but was he an isolated one? Today we're talking about dentistry. We're talking to two reporters, Ferris Jabber and Daryl Austin, who've both written about cases of rampant overtreatment. The problem of overtreatment raises questions about what actually constitutes necessary dental treatment. When a dentist says you need a crown, what is that based on? Are dentists held to the same standard as medical doctors? Some of these questions have made me feel a lot better about the fact that I have not seen a dentist since the pandemic began. But, and this is a question I've asked you before about other subjects. Right, like herbal supplements and bear attacks in small towns. I am wondering what's political about this. Well, dentistry is healthcare. Even if, as some of our listeners may be surprised to learn, it's not practiced or provided quite the same way as other forms of medical care in the United States. But access to healthcare, how we pay for it, and how the way we pay for it shapes both patient and provider behavior are, of course, very political questions. I'm Alex Faria. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. Ferris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you wrote a terrific feature for The Atlantic magazine about dentistry. Tell us some more about John Roger Lund, who you focus on quite a bit in that story. What kinds of treatments was he subjecting his patients to? The most common procedures were root canals, crowns, and something called an IND, or an incision and drainage. So often, John Lund would perform a root canal on someone's tooth, then kind of repair or cap that root canal tooth with a crown, and then also build them for an incision and drainage, which is usually something that only happens in rare cases where there's a severe infection. Eventually, quite a few of his former patients sued him, and they won a settlement. The county of Santa Clara is still processing quite a big case against John Lund, mostly for various forms of financial fraud. If his successor at his practice hadn't looked into this, is there any mechanism by which he would have been found out? I don't know that anybody would have found him out if the new dentist, Brendan Ziedler, hadn't been so meticulous and in, in tracking all these past records, because he really had to go through years and years, decades worth of patient files to do the statistical analyses to show that the procedures were, you know, way above average. A typical healthy adult might have one or two root canals in their lifetime. John Lund was performing dozens on an individual patient. So that's way, way out of the norm. It's funny because because we're doing this on audio, no one at home will be able to see that I've been wincing for the last yeah. five minutes. Laura's just been like covering her mouth. And covering my mouth. <laughs> because just the words 20 root canals, is it's really hard to hear about someone going through that and not think how incredibly painful it would be. If this was something that was happening frequently to people who were at his practice, you can't help imagining there must have been this town or this neighborhood where everyone must have thought that they had exceptionally bad teeth. 
I mean, do patients ever raise a red flag about this kind of thing and just think my teeth can't be this bad? Yeah, I spoke to a number of Lund's former patients and it was the variation was interesting. Some of them kind of had this tough attitude. They would say that the procedures weren't so bad. They were kind of trying to downplay them, you know, and then others... I think in part because of just different pain sensitivities and different thresholds, they were extremely uncomfortable and in a lot of pain for many of the procedures and and told Lund that, but he, you know, he kept insisting on on doing more procedures. One thing that the new dentist noticed when he took over Lund's practice is that a lot of Lund's former patients expected to have a lot of work done. After being with Lund for so long, they were surprised when the new dentist, you know, gave them a clean bill of health and said they didn't need any more work. That sort of uh, shocked them. So this was just what Lund's patients knew. They thought this was normal. They had no reason really to question it. Part of the reason Lund was able to get away with this for so long is how the field of dentistry itself is structured in the U.S. There's just not many provisions in place that would prevent what he did. Most doctors will end up working for a large healthcare organization or a hospital with quite a bit of oversight. But the vast majority of dentists in the U.S. open up their own practices, so they mostly answer to themselves. There are ethical guidelines and and codes that they're supposed to follow, but there isn't somebody looking over their shoulder day to day. No one's even collecting those numbers, those stats generally of how many procedures a dentist is doing on an individual patient. All of that stuff is sort of proprietary information to the business. Yes. And this particular problem of overtreatment, unnecessary treatment, is is very poorly studied. It's really difficult to find any kind of comprehensive statistics about it. You can find numbers of sort of more general infractions um, that dentists, you know, make in the U.S. from year to year. But even that information tends to be rather codified and restricted to these pretty obscure trade journals, and they can be quite pricey to get that information if you're not part of the dental community. John Lund is an outlier, an extreme example of a dentist engaging in overtreatment. But one thing that can be scary about hearing about dentists like him is that it's so easy to imagine yourself in the shoes of his patients. And it's so hard as a patient to evaluate the advice we're given. Often seeking a second or third opinion just complicates things even further. We talked to the independent journalist Daryl Austin, who wrote an article for Kaiser Health News and USA Today about dental fraud. Daryl told us about the experience he had that made him want to start investigating the field of dentistry. I have a daughter who's just turned 10 and she needed braces last year. We went to an orthodontist that was recommended to us and it was several thousand dollars for the treatment that she needed before he would even consider braces. So we decided to seek out a second opinion, and that dentist had a completely different take. Not one thing was similar to what the first dentist had said, and his cost was a little bit less. A third dentist, his cost was around $8,000, and then our last dentist recommended a, a treatment option that was about $800. So you're off by a factor of 10. Exactly. Between those two. Yeah, and I began to realize that there were, and I learned that the term is dental philosophies, that there are different dental philosophies that a lot of dentists have that, that don't even begin to get into the space of fraud necessarily, but that are just a dentist saying, I'm more aggressive in my treatment plans. And another dentist says, I'm more conservative and I want to take a, a softer approach. And you don't know as a consumer what type of philosophy your dentist has. Yeah. I mean, I, so I think that the assumption that I would have come in with, and I think a lot of people would come in with, is that you go to the dentist and there is a distinct problem with your teeth. 
And there's probably a small number of solutions to that problem. And that you would imagine most dentists would agree broadly on what needs to be done. What you're saying is everyone was identifying different problems, different solutions. They range wildly in price. And that sort of raises this question of what is the science of dentistry? Are there like objective things we can agree about here that need to be done as treatments? Like what does it mean to have healthy teeth if there's so much disagreement on diagnosis and treatment? Yeah, that's the really the issue, Laura, is there isn't consensus. I mean, most Americans think of the American Dental Association as sort of this compilation of all of these rules, and these are the things they have to follow. And the ADA did tell me that there are guidelines that they expect dentists to adhere to. They're more ethical guidelines. There's not really a... a a specific prognosis for problem A deserves treatment plan A and problem B. It's not really like that. I find it interesting that, you know, the ADA, I think, you know, when you might see it quoted in the newspaper or something, you might think of it primarily as a medical organization. But but I think you're saying it's almost more like a sort of professional association, right? Advancing the interests of dentistry as a profession. It's exactly right, Alex. Yes. And they made very clear to me, we are not a regulatory agency. There are certain standards that dentists have to keep in order to be considered an ADA qualified dentist. But as far as going in and investigating what's going on, that ADA does nothing like that. A regulation is supposed to exist on the state level in what is called dental boards, but it's more of an examining body. If I have an issue, like I want to report a dentist who I think has treated me poorly, I can go to the state dental board and they will investigate it. And in that way, they're a regulatory body, but they're not out there checking in with dentists in any way that I found anyway. We've been talking to Daryl about the minimal regulation and enforcement in the field of dentistry. After a short break, we'll be back to talk about how that lack can be traced in part to the divide between dentistry and medicine. Before the break, we were talking about the lack of regulation in dentistry. Ferris traces that lack of regulation in part to the divide between medicine and dentistry, which has a long history. While prepping for this episode, we were just constantly sharing our own stories of dentist visits and like questioning past visits and just wondering like, well, was that dentist right? Was that necessary? You mentioned how the business of dentistry departs from a lot of how medicine is performed in the U.S. And the difference goes back quite a ways. Yeah, there's a very long, rich, fascinating, morbid history of dentistry in the U.S. and how it departed from medicine or stayed apart from medicine for a very long time. If you go back to the 1700s or 1800s, dentistry wasn't considered a medical profession. It was more like a trade, almost like blacksmithing or something like that. And a lot of the people who call themselves dentists um, or barber surgeons would perform a wide range of very sort of basic and crude procedures, everything from using leeches to bandaging people up to wrenching teeth out of their mouths if, if they were too infected or, or it was causing too much pain. And then over time, dentists in the 1800s tried to integrate into the medical universities of the time and were basically rebuffed by the doctors and professors who did not consider dentistry to be worthy of integration into mainstream medical education. And so dentistry formed completely its own independent track and has evolved on its own track since then. It's just four years. You can choose to specialize in something after those four years, or you can get your license and start practicing right away. So there is generally less training involved. 
So people might have assumed that dentists were trained like other doctors. But in fact, these differences remain. And dentistry has actually been late to catch up to a lot of things other medical sciences take for granted, including even the idea that there should be evidence to support common practices and procedures, right? So there's this whole movement called evidence-based medicine, and it also has a very long history. It, it started at least in the 1960s. Some scholars think you can trace it back centuries. And dentistry didn't start having the same conversations until probably the mid-1990s. And so the whole idea of evidence-based medicine is we need to move focus away from received wisdom and intuition and kind of the old ways of doing medicine and towards the results of highly controlled empirical studies. The trouble for dentistry is that there simply isn't a strong body of evidence backing up even many of the most common dental procedures that we take for granted. The data is inconsistent and inconclusive, and it's very difficult to say definitively that even something like flossing for plaque definitely works. And I think most people aren't aware of that. We just kind of assume that these things have been tested. When a dentist says to you that there's something wrong, that you need to have something done, most of us have no idea. We don't have any of the expertise required to contradict them. Even if we did go to the research literature, we wouldn't necessarily find much compelling data to help us make a decision. Well, that that bit of doubt about flossing makes me feel a lot better. Because <laughs> <laughs> anything to rationalize not flossing. If dentists aren't using empirical evidence from controlled studies to decide what to do in your mouth, how are they deciding what to do in your mouth? You will hear words like uh, experience. Some dentists will even say, well, dentistry is an art. You know, and it's like, <laughs> well, I don't really know if I want an artist you know, <laughs> performing surgeries in my mouth. But so it's all about that person's individual expertise, supposedly, and, and sort of their good judgment. A few dentists in the piece say this several times, that the majority of dentists really are ethical and they really are trying to be as judicious as possible and to be prudent and cautious, you know, sort of taking the wait and watch approach. Like if it seems like there's something going on, the best thing to do is to wait a little bit, try better hygiene, see what happens before rushing into procedure. But when you look at newspaper archives and lawsuits and complaints coming from within the dental community itself, you can clearly see that overtreatment is a problem. There's so many psychological and, and medical factors that come together and allow for uh, the opportunity for overtreatment. No, it is shocking when you think about it. I mean, I've been to the dentist for a cleaning and at the end of the visit, they'll say, your teeth are kind of crooked. Do you want to, mm -hmm. are you interested in getting them straightened? This would be the, the equivalent of if I went to the doctor and they said, well, we've done your annual checkup, but do you want some help losing weight? You know, it's like drawing attention to an insecurity and then saying, I can help. Yeah, it's even more like after your physical, they're like, all right, while you're here, facelift. Like yeah, <laughs> exactly. So there's something as interesting has happened during the pandemic, which is that I think a lot of people have not been going to the dentist nearly as frequently because we've all been trying to sort of avoid, you know, anything that isn't absolutely essential. And of course, the maxim that we've all grown up with is that you should go to the dentist twice a year, every six months. But it turns out there's no scientific backing for that maxim. And hmm. some scholars have even traced it to a toothpaste commercial from decades ago, or possibly even to a pamphlet from the 1800s. And most dentists these days agree that if you are, you know, an adult with good oral hygiene, you probably don't need to go to the dentist more than once every 12 to 16 months. Ferris talked about how the field of dentistry developed separately from medicine and how that still affects the way it works today. But that's just one piece of it. 
Daryl Austin also talked about how dentists make money and the economic incentive to overtreat patients. Here he is. One of the dentists I interviewed actually said, I see myself as a business owner first and a dentist second. Meaning, of course, that they wanted to do right by their patients, but that they see it as a business. In fact, I think sometimes when I see a new dentist office pop up around the corner and they've got all these banners and stuff and they've got balloons, I'm like, it's not really that different than like a a new restaurant opening up down the road. They've (laughs) got to bring in new clientele and they've got to market just the same way as anybody else does. And just because they provide service A is not that necessarily that different than other service-based, you know, uh, industries. So can we just break that down a little bit? What services are they relying on to become sustainable practices? Because, you know, you can go for tooth whitenings or you could go for tooth cleanings, but then there are the more expensive services like root canals, crowns. You can really start racking up some quite frightening bills when you go to the dentist. So what are the different levels of services there and what kinds of incentives do dentists have to push towards those more expensive treatments? One thing that I looked at in this process and that I developed some empathy for was the fact that I had a number of dentists tell me if I'm only doing the basic care, I'm not able to keep my practice afloat anymore. Most of the insurance rates were established back in the 60s and 70s, and many insurance companies still adhere to those same rates today, the amounts that they're willing to reimburse dentists for. So it it becomes imperative to make up that difference somewhere. They need you to come in more often for cleanings. They need you to have more aggressive cleaning, this quadrant scaling where it's, they like basically go to the whole gum line and, and it's like anywhere between a $900 and $1,200 procedure versus a hundred dollar cleaning. They need to push x-rays that maybe you don't necessarily need. I mean, you don't realize as you're just sitting there in the chair, each of those little things is billed differently to an insurer. There's just so many different ways in which dentists can make more money from your mouth than just the standard feeling. And lots of them see you as a patient that way. You made a very important point too, which is like, it's not to say like greedy dentists everywhere committing fraud, but the incentives are there for them to perform unnecessary procedures sometimes, for them to lean towards certain more well-reimbursed procedures than other less ones. If you had designed a system to encourage abuse and excess and fraud, it would look a lot like the way the insurance reimbursement works for dentistry. You're exactly right. Yes. The most evidence of fraud from the people I interviewed is in corporate dentist chains. These are chains that have basically gone in, they see a dentist struggling. And unfortunately, I think this happened quite a bit more during the pandemic. And they'll make a lump sum offer and say, we want to buy you out. And the best part for the dentist is most of the time that dentist gets to stay on. In fact, a lot of people are seeing the mom and pop shop dentist office around the corner and don't realize that the back end of that is now being run by a somebody, a corporate dentist chain. And so these chains will come in and establish totally different standards and incentives to all the dentists working for them. And they either go along with it or they're shown the door. Yeah, you had a great, I'm just going to read this quote from one of your sources, who was a dentist, I believe. Yeah, he is. Yeah, Dr. Silber. Yeah, Dr. Silber. And he said, and so, you know, these corporations and chains are buying these small practices. Private equity money is sometimes involved. And then Dr. Silber says, when that happens, the executive at the top tells dentists working for them which procedures to push, like a chef tells their team of waiters to push the daily special. That's exactly right. There's a dentist who said, whoever could do the most quadrant scaling procedures 
was offered a cruise <laughs> at the end of a month from a corporate chain. There was another one that was for crown procedures, the number of crown procedures in a month, they had a bonus. A mom and pop business around the corners, totally different than a dental office that accepts Medicaid. And one that works with certain insurance companies is going to have different procedures than the one, one that works with others. So where there's outright fraud, where in the sort of world of dentistry is that the most common? Absolutely. In cases of Medicaid, if a dentist bills you know, a private insurer for too much treatment, it's going to get flagged at least by the insurance company. Nobody else will probably care, but the insurance company cares. And so in Medicaid, on one hand, Medicaid actually pays a lot less for certain procedures than some private insurance companies. But on the other hand, there's some loopholes in Medicaid that don't exist with private insurance companies. And there's less oversight where something's going to get flagged in the back end. It's a system that can be taken advantage of easily. In fact, one of the examples we list in our article was the dental office who was literally going, he was sending his staff to go to a dollar store around the corner, buying these little mouth guards. And then he would bring them into his clinic, melt them down a little bit so that they would get soft and malleable. And then he could insert them into the patient's mouth. And we're literally talking like a dollar, $2, $3 plastic device. This is something that they would wear for like a football game and put it in and tell them that was it. And then he would turn around and bill Medicaid 90 or hundred dollars for each mm. of those. And we're talking a scam that he profited more than a million dollars from. That example I really like, because I think it shows that some of the fraud you're describing exists on a spectrum from outrageous fraud, which is really, a, you use the word scam, someone knowingly buying dollar store mouth guards and marking them up. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it seems like there's just a kind of mission creep, like a kind of, well, you know, you could do it this way or you could do the more expensive one, you know, go with the more expensive one, a kind of silent move towards overtreatment just because you got to try to make things work business-wise. It seems like the harms here are, one, it costs a lot of money, and then two, you are having parts of your body removed in some cases with the crown that you could actually have kept. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, there's there's a long-term implication there, right? Because if you have a crown, it doesn't last forever. No, you're exactly right. In fact, sadly, the most common victims by far are children mm -hmm. because they are going to complain either way. Their parents are expecting <laughs> that. Because their teeth aren't already all in their proper place, it's really easy to get away with a cap that doesn't need it or a type of implant that wouldn't hold for as long. There was a case of one corporate chain where a mother had come in and her babies, she thought she was just getting a regular checkup and she had had like three different teeth pulled on one side and two on the other side and the whole mouth bloody and they had done these pulpotomies and the dentist said it was all necessary and he ended up being disbarred or removed. Um, he lost his license. This was on a small child. Yes. And with their first set of teeth. So these, I mean, what's even the point in doing that kind of work on teeth the child is not going to ultimately have anyway? especially think about it for a child, the fear associated with going to the dentist for the rest of your life mm -hmm. yeah. started with an experience where you had this baby root canal that was needless. Yeah. And I mean, it intuitively makes sense that there would be a lot of unnecessary treatment and outright fraud on children's dentistry because the evidence will literally all just fall out. <laughs> You're not going to catch it in x-ray like years later on. Well said. But then with an adult, there are more long-term harms, right? Because if you, I mean, I've read horror stories of people who've ended up having crowns on nearly all of their molars, for instance. Mm -hmm. And if you've got that, you're looking at every 10, 15 years, like 
tens of thousands of dollars worth of dental work to replace these things, often intrusive dental work and very expensive. You're kind of stuck with it for the rest of your life. Yes, yes. And, and one of the areas that we talk about with adults is the thumbtack implants that are different than a permanent kind of implant that most dentists usually use. They'll put this in this little bolt in your mouth and it's meant to just hold indentures is the reason why it was designed. But they're now using it as an implant. And those things, Laura, come out every year or two. And they're billing it just as if it was a standard implant, which is, you know, close to $1,000. And so you're going in every few years and you don't understand, oh, I, and you know, they don't need to tell you this went faulty for this reason, or you aren't brushing enough. And you have no idea why that thing keeps coming out. And it's because they were putting in the cheap version of what they needed to install in the first place. It's all pretty horrifying. What do you think the solutions are? Well, I definitely think the industry needs to be more heavily regulated. There needs to be some oversight, not just oversight that exists when situations are reported, but checking in and making sure that there are standards that are being met. That would be a truly dramatic measure to overhaul this entire industry. But I think that there needs to be some accountability in all of these cases. I also think dentists need to be able to say why they recommended a certain treatment plan. That's not too difficult to do. Maybe to their dental board or somebody who can oversee how that's done. As far as us as the patient is concerned, there's nothing wrong with asking, is there a cheaper option available? Is that really necessary? We've talked about the kind of oversight that's needed and what patients can do to protect themselves. But what do dentists think about these allegations about their industry? Ferris Jabba's article was published back in 2019. So Ferris, since it came out, have you heard from many dentists? Oh, yes. I especially... Immediately following the article, I got a huge number of emails and tweets and a lot of a lot of hate mail from <laughs> dentists. What was interesting, though, is that it was almost evenly split between dentists who were saying, you know, thank you for writing about this, for bringing these issues to the fore. And then the other half was a lot of dental professionals who are somewhat understandably incensed because they feel like their profession is being attacked. You know, and I, I can mm. understand that dentistry gets such a bad rap in so many ways. I do wish that more people had paid attention to kind of the contrast between John Lund and the new dentist, Brendan Ziedler, because part of the idea was to show that there's a huge variation in how different dentists behave. And, you know, Brendan Ziedler is, is a very upstanding dental practitioner and followed all the ethical guidelines to a T. And then, the, you know, the people who didn't like the article just conveniently ignored him, his, his <laughs> uh, presence in the article. And so I think for me, like the, you know, the bottom line is empowering patients with that knowledge. I just think people need to know this. They need to be informed going into the dentist's office. Ferris Jabba's article, The Truth About Dentistry, was published in The Atlantic in 2019. Daryl Austin's piece, Why Your Dentist Might Seem Pushy, was published by Kaiser Health News in May. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Melissa Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoyed The Politics of Everything and you want to support the show, one thing you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.